It's good to see each and every one here tonight. Uh, I know there's a lot of brethren in various places that are struggling with the weather. And I think it's probably affected our attendance because the weather is rather inclement outside. But you are here. It's comfortable inside. And we have an opportunity to study together from God's Word. On Sunday evenings, I've been attempting to preach from some of my own personal favorites and to also preach from some of your favorite Bible passages. Tonight, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is a section that was recommended by three or four different people. Some of you recommended verses 4 through 6, some of you recommended verses 1 and 2, and some of you recommended verses 6 through 8, and so you're going to get it all uh, in one section tonight. When you think about favorite passages, each and every week I try to think of what makes a passage favorite to me. Many of them are like the ones I dealt with two weeks ago tonight, like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, where you have a passage that expresses a, a goal, an aspiration, an idea, where Paul would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. On the other hand, there are some passages where when you read them, you realize there's something great has been done for us something that has been provided for us. And the book of Romans, in my judgment, is one of those great books where you have strong doctrinal teaching, but from that you also have some great encouragement because of that doctrine, because of what you learn from it. The background of Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, involves the misunderstanding of some of the people in Paul's day, of the idea of grace. What does grace mean? How is grace applied? And we're going to study about that. And tonight we're going to look at how Paul's explanation provides both incentive and encouragement for us to be faithful. Whenever you read and study a passage, I always try to look, are there major themes, major ideas, major points that are made. And I like for that to be the impetus, the, the main thoughts for our lesson. And so in verses 1 through 8 of Romans 6, I see two major themes, and that's what we're going to study tonight. We're going to talk about death, and we're going to talk about deliverance. Let's begin, first of all, with the idea of death. Paul begins this passage by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Certainly not. Paul poses a rhetorical question that was likely in the minds of many of the believers. And to understand this, what you have to do is you have to look at the immediate context. You have to look at what just precedes this, and then you have to back up and see it in the larger context. To look in the immediate, I want you to back up with me to the last verse of chapter 5, where Paul says in the last part of that verse, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now to understand Paul's explanation, here's the, the thought behind this. Here's a man who commits sin. Can God's grace forgive that sin? And the answer is most certainly. 
But many people might say, but you don't understand, I have lived a wicked and a vile life. I've done things that no Christian should have ever done in their life. Can God's grace cover a sinner like me? And the answer is yes. Paul viewed himself as being the chiefest of sinners. But could God's grace cover a man? Could it forgive the sins of a man who had persecuted the Lord's church? And the answer is yes. If a man would genuinely repent of those sins. As you step back a little bit further in the larger context of the book of Romans, Paul arrays this idea back in chapter 3 in verse 8. As he has explained the sin of the Gentile in chapter 1, as he explained the sin of the Jew in chapter 2 in the first part of chapter 3, concluding with the idea in Romans 3 verses 9 and 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. We have previously laid the charge that both Jews and Greeks, they're all under sin. But Paul makes this statement in verse 8. And why not? Let us do good, evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. Paul says there are some people slandering us. And what they are saying about us is, is that we are teaching we ought to do evil that good may come. Let me illustrate this to you. Someone knows that stealing is wrong. But what if a person were to say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to steal from people who have more than they need. I'm going to steal from rich people. I'm going to take what they have and then I'm going to take all that money and I'm going to come and put it into the contribution of the Lord's church. And with that money, we'll be able to carry the gospel into areas where it's never been known. We'll be able to support more missionaries than we've ever supported. And you'd say, well, that doesn't make sense. What would you be teaching people with that money that you would be using? But there were some people saying that Paul was teaching, let us do evil that good may come. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Same thought, same idea. But Jude explains it even a little further for us. In the book of Jude, verse 4, he says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who have turned the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who have tried to take God's marvelous grace and turn it into something that was meant for lewdness, wickedness, evil. And when you think about that, a person might say, well, I just can't believe people would ever do that. I can't believe people would ever get the mentality of mine to say, well, I can do sin, and God will somehow just wipe his hand over it and say, it doesn't matter, it doesn't count. Well, I want to go to Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 7, and look at verses 9 and 10. Very simple illustration of the point that I'm trying to make. Jeremiah the prophet asked, 
Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come stand before me in the house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. You see, there were people in Jeremiah's day who would say, you know what? It's okay to steal. It's okay to commit adultery. It's okay to burn incense to Baal and think that they can still stand before God acceptable. They said, we've been delivered so we can do all these things. We are God's people, and regardless of what we do, regardless of what we say, God's still going to take care of us. Now, folks, I don't mean to be offensive, but I have been to several funerals where a particular denominational preacher will stand up and say, about a person whose life has been filled with sinful ways. Well, that person was gave his life to the Lord back years ago, and we all know, and that's their saying, once saved, always saved. That you can say anything you want to say, do anything you want to do, live any way you want to live, and that somehow God's grace just simply says that doesn't count. Paul is dealing with that kind of mentality. And he rejected the suggestion that with an emphatic no, the New King James translates it certainly not. The original King James, the American Standard, translates it God forbid. The literal words are, let it never be so. Those of us who are now Christians, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is no, not at all. Well, now Paul's going to have to explain this. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? See, that's where he comes along and explains the death. There is supposedly a death taking place. The old man and his doings. Look with me at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's just like Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. We've literally killed that old man. Now, with the sinful man killed, I can go to the Bible in a number of places and find that teaching. For instance, listen to Paul as he writes the Galatians. He says, I have been, notice his words, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul said that old man, the old Paul that used to do all these things, that man was crucified. 
Well, Paul, aren't you still alive physically? Yes, I am. But the life which I now live, the one that I'm living in the flesh, I am living by faith. We sing that song, living by faith. That's what it means. Or Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things on, not on the things on the earth, for if you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, you died to your sins. Or 1 Peter 2, 24. Peter writes, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. And folks, those are only three passages that I pulled out to talk about when you become a Christian, you have a death to that old sinful way. But what does one do with a dead body? You bury it. When someone of our loved ones passes away physically, we have a funeral service and then we have a committal to the ground. Jesus, when he died, was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We are united with him in our burial. There's a sense in which Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. You and I die to our sins, we are buried, and then we're raised to walk in a new life. And this is symbolized in the act of baptism. I know there's a lot of people who don't understand why those of us in the Lord's church place such a great emphasis on baptism. And the reason is, is because the Bible places emphasis on it. John the Baptist taught it. Jesus taught it. All the apostles taught it. And when the apostle Paul came along, he explained it in detail. He says, first of all, you have a death to sin. Look at the passage, Romans 6, 11, same context. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then you have the burial in water. Burial is an immersion. It's not just sprinkling a little dirt on top of someone or a little water on top of someone. A, a true burial is not just sprinkling dirt on top of the body. And the burial, and it's not pouring someone, it's a full immersion, putting someone all the way under. Colossians 2.12, Paul would write, Buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised through faith, with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. But then, just like Jesus came out of that tomb alive, you and I come up from our baptisms to walk in a new type of life. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're a different individual. We have killed that old man off. We've got a new life directed by Christ. Ephesians 4, 24 and that you put on the new man who was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. 
There's a sense in which when we become Christians, we adorn, we put on, like clothing, a new type of life. Colossians 3.10, And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. But the second thought or theme that is found in Romans 6, 1 through 8, is that of deliverance. And in some people's minds, the deliverance was, we are now free to sin. And Paul said, no, you are not free to sin. You are free from sin. Let me explain. When you go to Galatians chapter 5, Paul is writing much the same as he is to the Romans. And just as you think about those people in their minds, he explains to them, you've got to understand what your freedom is for. He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. The word liberty means freedom. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He said, your freedom from sin is not freedom so you can go on sin all you want to. In 1 Peter 2.16, he puts it like this. As free, yet not using our liberty as a cloak of vice, but as bondservants of God. You don't use your freedom and misuse it to do bad things. God didn't provide freedom for that. Now, if you really want to see it, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, you can see Paul develop this idea. Notice with me, Romans 3, verse 7, verse 18, verse 20, and verse 22. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end everlasting life. He's trying to explain the deliverance we have from sin. Now, if a person is really honest... Sin is hard. It's hard on us. And it becomes a very hard taskmaster as well. Sin will be oppressive to us. I know there's a lot of people say, oh, sin's fun. Sin has, you know, joyous parts to it. Initially, sometimes it does. But sin eventually grabs a person. I look at all these commercials where they advertise uh, liquor, they'll advertise. They always show young people laughing, having a good time. They never show the other side of a person who's 45 years old who looks like they're 80, who is now an alcoholic, who now has a broken home, who now has all these heartaches. Sin only wants to show you the sweet, pretty side of it. It doesn't want to show you the ugly side that comes along with it. Listen to Jesus as he addresses the Jews. He said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
They answered him, we're Abraham's servants or descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of it. He's a slave of sin. Sin grabs a hold of you. Now it owns you. And it doesn't matter what sin you have chosen. Sin has this way of just grabbing a hold of you and not letting go. When Peter wrote 2 Peter chapter 2, he used some terms that I think really pulls this out. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, they have their heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Notice with me that idea in the first, the end of that first line there, and that cannot cease from sin. Sometimes when people get a taste of sin, it's just like it's got a hold of them. It won't let them go. Get down to verse 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him is he also brought into bondage. There are people who will say, oh, you need to, to seek your freedom, seek your independence. Only to find out that it dominates you. We see the baptism that we go through is for the remission of sins. There's a deliverance there in the sense that all those sins that I have committed in the past, all those things which have gotten a hold on me, I'm freed from them when I am baptized. That's exactly what the apostles preached. You remember Peter on the day of Pentecost? They came to him and they said to him, What shall we do? And his response in verse 38 of Acts 2 was, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. When you are buried in water back here or wherever you are baptized, from that you enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 22 and verse 16 Paul was describing his own conversion, and Ananias said to him, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So this passage can be an easy favorite as it features our freedom from sin. It gives us a picture of how we have been in bondage to sin, and this idea that we can just keep on sinning, to get this freedom, you as a non-Christian have to be baptized. You have to be released from your sins. And those of us who are Christians cannot keep on sinning. And so we ask the question, where do you stand before God? As you read Romans 8, how does this passage apply to you? Are you a person walking with God, free from sin? Then wonderful. If sin is still in your life, if you're not a Christian, now's the opportunity. At the end of every sermon, 
the end of every devotional that we have, we always have the Lord's invitation. And that's the way it should be. Because that provides the sinner the opportunity to correct the things in his life. If you're not a Christian tonight, why not come and be baptized for the remission of your sins? If you're a Christian and there's sin, why not come and be restored while together we stand inside?